Every week, this is Four for Friday. Uh, we're recording on a Thursday. I'm Michael Gurley. This is Will Rob, and uh, the format of our show is we spend about 20 minutes or so going through four interesting topics, um, phrases, questions, and we do two what we call appetizer questions, and then we do two serious questions, and we'll spend time on them, talking about them, and uh, hopefully have an interesting conversation and be in and out in 20, 25, 30 minutes. So so with our first question, my co-host, Mr. Rob, go ahead. So my first question is, what is the silliest, lamest, or best compromise you've made with yourself during quarantine? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Look, I, I think the one, I've got a couple ones, but for sure, ordering fine dining takeout is like the weirdest thing. Because I think the thing we don't talk about with fine dining is that food doesn't actually taste that good, you know, 20, 30 minutes after it comes out of the oven. But my wife and I have still done it just to go through the experience of feeling normal, right? Like, okay, we're going to have date night. We're going to go to a special restaurant. But instead of doing that, we've gone to get the, the food. And I think both of us realize the food just doesn't taste as good when it's been sitting in a styrofoam container in a car for an hour. Your process to uh, retrieve the food and bring it back to the house takes an hour? Well, so you get there. Right. Okay. So let's say you order it and say, we're going to be here at 545. Well, they, they don't want to give it to you late. Right. So that means invariably your food's been sitting for 15 minutes. And so you get there 15 minutes, then you get, you, you drive the 15 or 20 minutes back to your house, you park, you come back in, then you plate the food. That's another 10 or 12 minutes, get the wine out, you know, yell at some kids like, okay, well, it's close to an hour. Like it's, it's impossible to do different. And by then the filet mignon or whatever really fancy meal you got, like it just takes like a salty buttery mess as opposed to something that's, you know, come out of a, come out of a kitchen. Yeah. We've had the same experience. I think we've kind of learned which, which food does better on takeout and, and which doesn't do as well. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of the dining experience is experience of sitting in the restaurant and relaxing and have somebody else do everything. Yeah. So to pay for for a nice fine dining one feels a little silly. Yeah. Yeah. If you get a nice curry with a side of rice. I think that still works out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, the other thing with takeout right now is there's kind of this awkwardness when you're standing out outside in front of the restaurant waiting for your order to be ready or for your name to be called if there are other people also waiting for takeout. Takeout. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then everybody's doing the, like, why is that person wearing a mask look or look exactly. at that person's fancy mask look or why is that person not wearing a mask? They're in a high risk, you know, 5X or comorbidity group. And you're just like, oh, man. Exactly. And why am I standing in line behind somebody who appears to not even ordered yet? My order's probably ready or not. I don't know. Um Anyway, my uh, my silly compromise has been twenty five percent caffeinated coffee. So oh. I take I take the coffee grounds and I do one scoop of regular caffeinated coffee, and then three scoops of decaf, and that's how I make my coffee. And I make it twenty five percent caffeinated uh, because uh, a lot of times, uh, a, a lot of time in the house, uh, a lot of kind of stressful situations about work or how things are going to go or when is this going to be over or how bad is it getting uh 
these are all kind of recipes for getting too worked up about ideas or having trouble sleeping or whatever. Mm. So I switched to no caffeine for a while and now I'm currently on 25% caffeine. Wow. I wow. did read about a kind of amazing one after I had thought about this question and put it down on, on paper to do. Uh, I read an article on Yahoo by a guy named Michael Stern who uh, was intending to be very compliant with the state of orders, but very frustrated. And his technique was to buy a giant container of jelly beans and eat the, a handful every couple of hours, one at a time, because he heard that loss of taste was a symptom of coronavirus. And as long as he can distinguish each of the flavors, he figures he doesn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so I enjoyed that one a lot. <laughs> as a, as a silly, the COVID thing that I, I just happened to find a day after I wrote the question down. Uh, it, is, it is interesting. You're, you're starting to see the people that uh, have been locked down for nearly three months and clearly did not, you know, hold themselves accountable on what they should be eating. And so it sounds like this dude is one of those, like I've seen some people that have definitely gotten an add on of the kind of COVID-19 by that, the 19 pounds that you gained in the past two months. So, yeah, which that's, that scared the crap out of me when I saw what was happening. I was like, Oh, I got to cut way back on what I'm eating. Just, just to maintain. Cause this is going to go on for a while. Theoretically. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I've, I've seen some people where they're, I haven't seen them face to face for months and then I've seen them face to face now off of zoom and it's like, Ooh, <laughs> like the, Ooh, Ooh, the, the, the uh, lack of exercise is not doing you well. So. I yeah. Know. I think we're all making compromises and indulgences with ourselves and it's, it's time to think about our general health. Yeah, totally. You want to move on to the next question? Let's do it. Uh, all right. So one for me. Uh, so why is it impossible to start a new pro sports league now in the major sports? So major sports are like basketball, NBA, right? Uh, baseball, football, hockey. Um, so why why is it impossible now? The, the last successful upstart league, besides besides counting soccer, the last successful upstart league in one of those and um, one of those sports was in the seventies, which was the ABA. So why, why is it impossible now? Why has nobody succeeded in uh, starting a new major sports league in one of the core sports in almost 50 years? I think it's the brand recognition that the existing leagues have for themselves and they've built for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the type of thing that we're consuming where as casual consumers of viewing those sports, we want to believe that we're watching the best and most important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those, those leagues are successful enough that there is lots of money involved. And I think the top talent accrues to that money. And I think as viewers, we, we, we know that. So we're only interested if we think we're watching the most amazing athletes per, uh, participating at the highest level of skill in important contest, right? We tune out for preseason a lot. There are lots and lots of fans around the world who only watch the Super Bowl when it comes to the NFL because this is what they think is the two best teams in the most important contest. So I think if you're trying to start an upstart league, everyone's going to look at it and go, well, why would I watch that if I don't think that it is the best? Right. 
Yeah, and I think that that ties to something that is really interesting, right? So you look at the ABA, which is the American Basketball Association. They got started in the 70s um, and they did precisely what you're talking about with getting the best. Like they would go out and in the draft at the time, the NBA was barely paying their players anything, right? And so what the ABA went in and said, oh, okay, who's the best kid coming out of college this year and they outbid the NBA. So they would go out and get, for example, Moses Malone or George Gervin or somebody like that. And so they suddenly just went in and, and were able to cut out that, that moat, right. That the NFL or the, in, in this case, the NBA had. Um, and, and, you know, what you're talking about precisely ended where there was an explosion of free agency and salaries right after the ABA and nobody's ever been successful starting a major league sports league since then. I think that's a, a fascinating time in sports business. And maybe the most interesting thing to talk about on this question is what was it about that time period that, that allowed that to happen? And I think it's that the, the major sport league or the competitor, the NBA at that point wasn't established enough to be totally dominant. Yep. And so there was some, some room for competition. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that room is there anymore. Uh, I think now in 2020, the chance of starting a new league in one of the existing major sports is really, really difficult uh, to impossible. The more likely scenario is um, creating a, a sport that hadn't previously been considered a major sport and getting it that kind of attention. And so that's maybe yeah. a conversation about soccer in America. Uh, for sure. I mean, that that's a great, I mean, probably a, a topic to go in and, and in the future and understand why MLS succeeded. But I do want to tell you before we could talk about that another time, but I do want to tell you, I've often debated, like if I just, somebody gave me like a half a billion dollars, like making my career going and finding like the top 10 NBA players, doubling their salaries and then making, making the whole just starting my own team outside of the NBA and the whole business would just be going on social media and taunting the NBA with like, you can't beat our league. We only have one team. Like who wants to fight us? We're the best, right? You just go get like LeBron and like, and like the Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan equivalents of like, whoever's the best of the best and just be like, okay, we have the all-star team, your league. You can figure out who you want to play with us. So anyway, there's probably better ways to blow a half a billion that, dollars. That sounds it, like something Mark Cuban would try to do. <laughs> well, yeah, there's probably better ways to blow a half a billion dollars, but dang, it would be so much fun. It would be really fun. Okay. Well, good, good luck with that idea. That does sound fun. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it would work or it would be a good use of that money, but um, let's talk about, your expertise let's talk about how software companies should be valued oh yeah this is really interesting and it's really hard um you know as a meta comment it's really funny when you see people kind of wade into software as a space um from kind of conventional industries right so software is weird that it's uh you know it has no inventory Right, you you're selling at these super high gross margins. You know, you can you can have software businesses that are recurring revenue that are running at 80, 90, 90 plus percent uh, gross margins. Right, so you see people wade into this stuff, and it's like, oh, that's how it works. Especially if they're you know coming from physical products companies or you know high volume, low margin kind of companies. It's really interesting. So. Um, so there has to be like a level of almost unlearning that some people have to do when they dig into software. Then 
you know, as you know, I mean, you have an MBA. I don't. There are a bunch of different ways to value companies. Everything from you know future cash flows to you know mar- market-based valuation to all kinds of different stuff. Um, and it really, which one of those kind of approaches you use depends totally upon a lot of factors around which category you know, in which kind of quadrant you live in for the software company. So say you're a high growth startup, right? You're, you're doing $5 million a year in revenue, but your business is tripling year over year. Um, But you're losing money, right? Because you're growing so quickly, which is what you're supposed to do because you're, you're, you want to fuel that growth. The problem is you can't then go and do say a, a, a cash flow model, right? Cause well, it would be actually worth negative. <laughs> right. So then you have to start to say, you know, use different alternative kind of ways of modeling a business like that. And then that differs also depending upon whether you're a, a dying company, whether you're one with slightly lower margins, what kind of churn you have in terms of customers, like then you start to have to bring in different models depending upon, you know, how, how, where you fit in the life cycle of a software company. Well, I think for for a software company like that that is cash flow negative early in its life, you can still do a cash flow model. Mm-hmm. You just have to make an assumption at some point out in the future those cash flows are going to turn positive. Right. And I think that's the thing with all of these businesses like they can all be valued with uh future cash flow models, discounted mm-hmm. cash flow analysis. But the more you get into uh assumptions and away from, you know, kind of current information, the harder it is to get an accurate model. And I think that's what's so hard for software about people, for people who are used to valuing other types of assets is the cash flow assumptions about the future get harder and harder. And so you fall back on kind of heuristic ideas like multiples or cap rates or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Maybe talk about a couple of those other heuristics you would use. Yeah. And that's where like, you know, it, it, that's where VC becomes venture capital becomes really powerful, right? Because in essence, they start to start to be making markets for investing in these high growth companies. Um, and then secondarily, it, it turns out it's really, really hard to determine which companies are going to be the ones that blow up and become something really big, right? So a typical venture capital portfolio, let's say you invest in 20 deals, two or three of those will be the ones that actually matter and everything else, you know, more than half of those will lose money. So, you know, the, depending on where you are also in the life cycle of the company, right? The, the earlier it is, say you're at the Say you're at the laptop and a, a couple of people in a PowerPoint stage, you know, the idea stage, um, you know, those typically go very much around uh, uh, what's what's market, right? So, you know, when I first started getting investing in that, you know, early seed stage or pre-seed stage investing, you would see deals happening at, you know, a $2 million post money valuation or a $3 million and sometimes four. Uh, And then as more and more people during the last cycle decided that they wanted to invest in software startups, you start seeing these six, eight, 10, you know, just, just get me on the, just get me on the cap, you know, the capitalization table kind of investments um, where you would start to see people actually super early, also getting 10, 12, $15 million valuations out of Silicon Valley. And it was just like, I, I don't know how this could ever return unless this becomes the next Uber, right? Um, so you you were suddenly, you know, at those kind of valuations, cutting yourself out of making a profit unless you just happen to be 
landing on one of the lottery tickets. So, so early on, you, it just starts to, people just start to kind of gel around what market is for that kind of stuff, um, where some investors can push that down and get lower valuations and therefore higher ownership for their money. You know, typically that, you know, that the market just kind of gels around that and the VCs who are talking about it and, and the angels who are talking about it, they tend to use that kind of stuff. Now, as the companies get further along in the tooth, you know, that's where you start to see that there are more numbers involved, right? You can start to quantify the performance of the business after they do a couple rounds of funding and say they're at $10 million in revenue. Well, there's a big difference between a company growing 200% per year and one growing 300% per year at a $10 million run rate, right? Because next year, one's going to be at 20 million and the other one's going to be at 30 million. So that's where you can start to see more of the MBA type modeling happen later on in the software existence until eventually you get to where you're, you know, a public company, right? And you can, um, you can look at the, the quarterly financials and make a pretty good approximation of where they're going to be the next few years because you have five, six, seven years of historicals to base everything off of. What about the talent side? Whenever I think about software or investing in software, one of my concerns would be, well, you know, they, these people seem to have a good software coming, company going and a good idea for a product. Mm -hmm. But what happens if the two or three best software engineers decide they want to do something else with their life? Um, yeah, I think that's a misconception, right? Um, and it's based on this idea that as a company gets to scale or gets established, what really matters is the technology. And like for some businesses, yeah, like it's, it's interesting. Um, but over time, the things that make a really valuable software business are not the, the tech coming out of the developers' brains, Right. Um, so let's look at Salesforce as a good example. Arguably, they they don't really have that great of technology. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty straightforward web app that somebody uses to build. So if the if the developers leave, that would be great. But it also is not why those developers are no longer their competitive advantage. The competitive advantages they have are things like brand install base, their platform of, of uh, other technologies that plug into what they do, the knowledge that most everybody knows how to use Salesforce, so you should buy Salesforce, you don't have to train your people. All of those are the things that actually protects the company. It's not, the moats around that business are not, you know, do I have this, do I have smarter developers? Um, now that's- Well, and those same things yeah. would enable them to, to bring in new developers if people left. Yeah, for sure, yeah. The MIT and Stanford and University of Texas, they're, they're pumping out new people all the time, or they go figure out ways to import them from other company, uh, countries. So that happens all the time. Okay. Yeah. So it's an art. Um, and, in, you know, and I think the net of this question of how software companies should be valued is really interesting. It just, um, you know, there's so many variables and so many changes in the life cycle stuff. Like there's lots of ways to value them. Uh, everything from, you know, free cash flow, which we didn't talk much about to like, well, lick your finger and stick it in the air. Well, that's what everybody else is paying. So that's what I'll pay too. <laughs> well, that, that points to what you said earlier about, you know, people who come in from other industries trying to value software companies, the the value of expertise when doing this, the experience of venture capitalists who have done it multiple times. Yeah. Um, because I think valuing anything is this, this balance of art and science. You could, mm -hmm. you could write a, a rule book for how to value a software company very carefully to explain the science of how it's valued and what math to try to do. Uh, but when it comes to making the assumptions and actually applying those 
those heuristics and doing that math, that's where the art comes in and that's where experience comes in. Yeah. And you, and I think you see that in a lot of the most successful quote, to use the Buffett term, you know, franchises in, in technology investing, you know, Sequoia benchmark, um, Kleiner Perkins is, a, is one of the old school ones. Um, those, those franchises tend to last for a while for several reasons, but one of them is because there is a knowledge transfer that happens as new partners come in and the old partners retire out. So you end up with, you know, say one of the guys who's been doing it for 30 years mentoring, you know, one of the quote unquote apprentices in the junior partnership and then giving them a real feel um, and, and having so much more experience compared to just a fresh entrant coming into the market, which is seemingly fun, but also pretty hard. Yeah. So this talk about mentoring is probably going to be our best transition for our fourth question on the list. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. I got it. Um, so what is the most important thing you learned from your dad? I would say doing the right thing for its own sake. And I don't think he would have ever used those exact words, Mm. but it's kind of the golden rule uh, or doing the right thing as its own reward. But I think it goes a little beyond um, looking for a reward from doing the right thing. Just, just doing the right thing. And I, I say that, you know, having, you know, been around my dad and, and talked to him, but also just walk, watching how he operated over the course of his life. Um, you know, another way to say it would be doing the right thing, even when no one was, is looking, but it's really yeah. just for its own sake. I think that's the, the important lesson that I got from my dad among, among many. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, hopefully it's okay for me to mention, but your father passed, my father's still alive and he's in his seventies. Your dad passed away when we were both relatively young. Um, so yeah, I was about 25 at the time. Yeah. So tw- 20 plus years ago. So do you, do you feel like there is a shift in how you're remembering your dad over time or do you think it's remained relatively consistent? I think it's remained consistent. Um, it's a good, good question. No, I think I think of him the same way I thought of him at the time in the same way I thought of him growing up, I think that that's partly because, you know, nothing, nothing has happened to change those memories mm-hmm. in that time period. And, and partly because he was a, a really consistent guy. Yeah. Well, I asked because it's, you know, watching other people I know is they age and what tends to happen is the, you know, their, their interesting points, right. Or their sharp edges, if you think about that way, where they mm-hmm. kind of differ from the mean, those things accentuate as people get older. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's an interesting, th- interesting question to think of. Well, would you think people I, become more like themselves? Yes. And I think it's through a combination of things. I think there is, uh, I think there is a, uh, as you get older, there's a comfort with just being who you are. And you're just like, I don't care. Uh, and then, and then I think the second thing is I feel like people's personalities are like cars in ruts. You know, they just keep digging deeper and deeper on those things while the other stuff stays what it is. And that's th- those two things together, you know, make me wonder, well, like, would I, would I see my father differently if, you know, if he had passed away like your dad did as when I was a younger man? Well, I would think probably, but, but by degree, maybe. Yeah. I don't, can you can you remember what you what you thought about your father when you were twenty five? Uh yeah, 
No, I mean, here's, it's, it's the wacky thing Ooh. about me. Well, what is the most important thing you, you learned from your dad? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. My dad is like a super tenacious guy. Like when my, my, uh, my dad, when he decides he's going to do something like he's like that, uh, and this is a bad metaphor, but like when you see, when you run into like a, an animal that just like bites down on something and is like, like, this is not getting done. I'm not letting go until the universe molds to my will. Like that, <laughs> that's the thing I've seen in my dad is just like, oh, like this is somebody who, when he gets his mindset, like it's just going to happen. Okay. makes sense. Yeah. So that, that I've always admired. Just like, I mean, I've been around your dad. I've done business with him before. Uh, I think I've been, had the benefit of learning a couple of things from him. I do think he does have that tenacity and that tuss, toughness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think the thing that I learned from your dad was, um, was just kind of a, a willingness to walk away from something that doesn't work. Yeah. And, and that, that same kind of, I'm going to mold the world to my, my will thinking like, okay, if this doesn't work for me anymore and I don't want to do it anymore, like he changes the situation. He makes it happen that way. He doesn't wait for it to change itself. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he's, I think it's, he's super good at balancing that with a level of realism where he's just like, Oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is impossible. I mean, he'll walk away from stuff that seemed like a good idea at first and, and change his mind very suddenly. And, you know, before he even gets started, he'll, he'll, right. uh, do that yeah yeah and i think he's that's that's accelerating right that's accentuated as he's gotten older which yeah well i mean that kind of thinking has for me when i see something that i I don't think is going to work i spend not as many days thinking about how to try to make it work oh yeah oh yeah i i think that is definitely one of the gifts that you get as you grow older which is that and i think it just comes from experience that and the patience of knowing like, okay, something else is going to come along. Like just walk away. Like it's better, better to do no deal than a bad deal. Cause another pitch will always come through. And that's, that's everything from who you partner with to who your team teammates are to, you know, mm-hmm. business transactions. So I, I totally like that. That sounds good. Hey, I have a, a new category to, to introduce before we wrap up here. This is something I was thinking about last week. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're on the fly. We haven't talked about this. We're adding a, uh, I, I forgot to bring this up before we started, but it's, <laughs> oh, it's a little revisit, a little errata. <laughs> a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about how I, you said I had purchased a 200 square foot trailer to tow my family around <laughs> in the summer. And I thought about that and I said, no, it's actually more like 70 square feet. Oh my God. Which is not good for people who might be over, say, six foot two. <laughs> oh man! All right, so I I didn't know we were going to have a uh, corrections correction segment in today's uh, today's podcast. Do you have any, well any comments at all about things we've talked about in previous com- podcasts? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, well, <laughs> let's wrap it up. We can right. call that the end. I think we killed it this week. Uh, so uh, yeah, episode five, the uh, Empire Strikes Again is is over and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.